This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. This episode is brought to you by stamps.com. If you are a small business owner, you know how much hard work and effort goes into maintaining a small business. I know because I am an indie podcaster. So if you've got a small business, you know that there is nothing more valuable than your time. So stop wasting it on trips to the post office. Stamps.com makes it easy to mail and ship right from your computer. Stamps.com basically brings the services of the US Postal Service and UPS shipping right to your computer. Whether you're in an office sending invoices, a side hustle, Etsy shop, or a full-blown warehouse shipping out orders, Stamps.com will make your life easier. All you need is a computer and standard printer. No special supplies or equipment and within minutes, believe you me, within minutes, you're up and running, printing official postage for any letter, any package, anywhere you want to send. Once your mail is ready, just schedule a pickup or drop it off. No traffic, no lines. There is no risk. And with my promo code POD, P-O-D, you get a special offer that includes a four-week trial plus free postage and a digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. Just go to stamps.com, click on the microphone at the top of the homepage and type in POD, P-O-D, stamps.com. Never go to the post office again. I think about post 9-11, there's a lot of hate crimes after 9-11 against Muslims and Arabs and South Asians and Sikhs and people with brown skin. And the connection is, at that time, the major two represent, representatives, you know, uh, representations, the, the two major representations of brown people in the U.S. at that time was a poo from The Simpsons, simple, harmless caricature, and terrorists. There is a huge range of humanity between harmless cartoon character and terrorist. Hey listeners, welcome back. This is your host Sadia Khan, tuned in with an exciting, humorous episode of Immigrantly. The clip you heard earlier is from an XOXO festival that features independent artists like podcasters and essayists and one of whom is our guest today. But before I introduce our today's guest, I wanted to share a few thoughts. This September was the 20th anniversary of 9-11 and so our feeds were understandably so inundated with reflections on the event. I don't think it is hyperbolic to admit that the day changed the US and us forever. The paradox, however, is that while the tragedy brought this country 
together under patriotic observances it divided us in more ways than few we became more nationalistic aggressive and partisan how we process this history in the present however can take on many forms our today's guest hari kundabalu shares his lived experiences to create a more nuanced narrative around american identity Hari is a comedian, writer, podcaster, and filmmaker who is best known for his outspoken 2017 documentary, The Problem with Apu, which calls out The Simpsons for its controversial portrayal of Indians in its character Apu, who, by the way, is voiced by Hank Azaria, a white person. As you can imagine this opened a floodgate for the Simpsons production team some of who were publicly more regretful than others about the material but only later did the franchise drop Apu as a character an achievement many would say was a long time coming Hari's critique of media representation extends outside of his context and Hari uses humor to get the rest of us there. One thing that I noticed and appreciate about Hari's work is his pushing of boundaries in instances where you and I may think there is representation. He points out how they may be flawed and unrighteous. you're rolling i am so excited to have you on immigrantly how are you doing i'm good thanks for having me so i've listened to a few of your scripts on comedy central and others directly from your album uh, and i noticed a theme when it comes to your work which is irony right you point out to hypocrisies of everyday life some more benign than others um i saw your joke about a hybrid escalate being the marital compromise between an environmentalist and a materialist uh, spot on but when you write hari do you think about this theme or is it just an unintentional undercurrent i mean the thing with stand up that i like so much is that it's very much i mean it can be very much honest and true to the person who is talking right like it's Hmm. Some people have more of a character in mind but for me it's it's an extension of myself maybe it's an exaggerated version of myself but it's it's stuff that I believe in it's coming from the heart so you know when I'm talking naturally these are things I'm interested in talking about so it isn't so much of me thinking okay I want to write jokes to cover these issues and this is an uh. important point I'm trying to make it's not that as much as like I I happen to have an eye for like that kind of, you know, hypocrisy or uh things that just don't make sense to me, you know, especially when it comes to like oppression or any sort of of unfairness. And so it's natural for me to talk about those things. I don't really think about it in terms of here are my goals to hit these topics. It's more like this is in my head already. How do I make it funny? Does it have anything to do with your upbringing or your immigrant identity? 
Um, I think to some degree, I mean, uh, you know, I, I'm the first generation born in the U.S. Um, so already when you have parents who, you know, are different because they, they are immigrants, there's immediately you, you see how the power dynamics are in play, like the kids who have mm -hmm. parents who know the system and know how things work. You know, I'm lucky that my both my parents understand and speak English, but I had friends who didn't have that and they would have to translate for their parents, you know, mm -hmm. things that like which also isn't necessarily the best in terms of keeping students accountable when you can control what the teacher is saying to your parents. But right. Yeah, but it but it's kind of like those are the kinds of pressures people felt So already. I think knowing that like there is that degree of unfairness, as well as the fact that in, in my household, you know, I just see like my mom gave up her career to raise two kids and my father didn't. And mm. th I think that also you see that at an early age. And maybe I didn't quite understand how patriarchy worked or, but I saw that this doesn't seem fair. And that's the kind of mm. stuff that always resonated with me. And, and, uh, I think as I've gotten older, it's the same, it's, it's different. I see more complexities and I can, you know, argue more points, but I think that basic sense of something is unfair comes from, you know, uh, parents who weren't in the majority and being a, a minority in this country. But you grew up in Queens, which is an extremely diverse community. And then you moved for college to Maine and it was a completely different demographic, right? And you talk about that experience. It was shocking for you, right? When did you realize that you are the minority because from your conversations, what I have gleaned is that initially you didn't even realize that you were part of minority, given the fact that you grew up in Queens. No, I I always knew I was a minority. I mean, that it's mm. impossible to not know that. I mean, I watch television. I watch film mm. like you notice the trend that, oh, we never exist in, in media whatsoever. Like it's it's. I never questioned the fact that I was a minority. That became obvious at a pretty early age that, hmm. um, you know, the culture at home doesn't match the culture of mainstream America. Like you, that's not, you know, so I wouldn't say that's true. But what I did realize is that I grew up in a very privileged space in terms of the amount of diversity that I had in front of me. And by diversity, I don't just mean racially or culturally, but mm, in terms mm. of religion, in terms of sexuality, in terms of people with, you know, uh, papers and without papers. I mean, like that kind of diversity that's very pure and honest and it speaks more to like communities. Um, mm. You know, that gave me a perspective of how broad the world is. And I got to meet many different types of people. And my friends and their parents certainly um, represented a, a large swath of humanity. Um, so mm. going to Maine to a pretty nice college in Maine, you know, I, I met wealthy people for the first time and not just rich people, but like people who had generational money as well. Right. As I was in a place in Maine where, you know, like the, it's not a, it's not a racially diverse place. You know, it's a very white place. And I don't think I completely understood what that would feel like. Uh, and that's where maybe I had my blinders on is because I, I grew up in this space, which I had a sense was not all America because of the media I was taking in. But at the same mm. time, I don't think I understood that in certain situations, I would not only be the only Indian person there, but I would be the only person of color there. And that was a new, a new experience. So that was really the shock for me. 
on the other hand uh, diversity was not part of my consciousness because i grew up in pakistan right so i was part of the dominant population and that's why sometimes i can in a very twisted way understand um why white americans are so fucked up in some ways because when you are part of the dominant population you tend to act a certain way sure but it's when i came to the us that's when i realized that there are so many different layers of my identity because all of a sudden i became part of the minority yes and that was such a different experience for me almost surreal right but hurry moving to your work now i have listened to a few of your podcast interviews and you talk about how you share your lived experiences with the audience right you don't focus primarily on politics which is a great way to introduce audience to who you are but at the same time i feel like our identities are so politicized in the us how do we separate one from the other it it is a really tricky line and i appreciate the question i mean i think part of it is to share those lived experiences is to normalize them because they are normal they're your lived experiences and they're shared by many other people right mm-hmm. and so to be able to put that like narrative into the the mainstream narrative of america is crucial because it becomes then part of this larger story of america so the goal is this should not be seen as political because i'm just sharing who i am and i'm equally american at right. the same time i uh, obviously it, it's it's political in the sense that just by doing so is challenging the dominant culture is, is challenging the dominant narrative is it's forcing people to think like white people in particular to think outside of themselves and such an act unfortunately even in this day of age is a uh you know a, a, a an act of I want I want to say revolution and that word seems too strong but like it it it's huh. definitely a, an act of resistance I'll say that. I like that. But I think that you know I don't want to go in with that mindset. I don't like to frame it that way because it does take away from our experiences to say what you know our, who we what our existence is a political existence because it mm. means that when people say I don't want to talk about politics it also means i don't want to talk about you when they say let's not get political it's like i'm not getting <laughs> political i'm telling you this is my experience and it's unfair so right. you know it, it's like kind of like when you have friends and you the, mm. the friend knows you and understands you when you talk about painful things in your life they don't see it as political they see it as this is my friend sharing their experiences and i'm sorry they're going through this if people mm. don't know you it feels political because this is not something you ever have to deal with and it's a challenge and so i feel like part of the goal is to not make it a challenge anymore to let people know like this isn't about you know challenging your existence this is about stating our claim as part mm. of this country as part of this community so i think a, a big part of it is of course it's a political act because what you say and don't say is political obviously but at the same time I don't think we should frame it that way. I think that our existence, like when I walk around every day, I'm not thinking I'm Indian, I'm Indian, I'm Hindu, I'm Indian, I'm Indian, yeah. I'm Hindu, I'm a male. I don't think that way. I just think yeah. <laughs> I'm a human being that exists in the world and I'm taking things in because that is, you know, I I'm only 
forced to confront those things, you know, when when I'm in a situation where I'm being questioned, when I'm, you know, when I'm when I'm I'm not uh, in the majority, when I'm clearly, uh, you know, almost feel like a subject to someone else's learning. Mm-hmm. That's mm. when that comes up. But, you know, it's not my existence on a day to day level doesn't feel political. It just seems like I'm living my life like anyone else. And I think that's that's an important distinction. So within comedy space, have you faced the challenge of being unable to appear relatable? And I'm using appear in quotes um, because I feel like there are so many comedians out there who will give white folks the content that they really enjoy. Have you received that kind of criticism and how have you dealt with it? Well, of course. I mean, I think re- relatability, first of all, is a is a push and a pull. It's not just like, you know, I'm not relatable to people. There's, there's a, as a performer, it's my job to make myself as relatable as possible. And that might be hmm. creating a little bit of context. That might be sharing my story so people understand it in order to set up jokes. And so that's my part of it. Um, sometimes there's just too much context to explain. And it, and then I have to make the choice, is this joke still worth doing? Or mm-hmm. is this for an audience that might not be the one that's in the room right now? In terms of the audience, you hope that they see you as a human being and therefore you are relatable and your experiences are different as are many people's. Like... You know, even between white people, you're not going to have the same experiences. There's too many, you know, intersecting identities and intersecting experiences for that to even be possible. So to be able to see, you know, what they assume I am and my skin color, not as a, a thing that separates us, but, you know, rather this is a person that might have a different perspective based on those things and i'm i'm interested in hearing. So, like, I think relatability, it's not as simple as like it's not all on me. You know, and right, at the same right. time, it's uh, I do have some responsibility as a performer. I'm not saying necessarily as a human being, but as huh. a performer, as a human being, it's it's frustrating because I that should be enough. You know what I mean? Like when people ask me where I'm from as a first question, it's very aggravating because you don't want yes. to, you don't want to hear <laughs> Queens, New York. If because the thing is, when you become <laughs> friends with somebody like legitimate friends with somebody. You, you'll you learn that naturally, you know, because ah. the friendship is real. You know, that's that's ah. different. Like, you know, my yeah. best friends, you know, who, who are white, like, you know, we had they know what my family background is and kind of my history. But that didn't come in, uh, you know, with a bunch of questions I was bombarded with. It came naturally as part of a friendship as we learn about each other, because that's how this mm-hmm. works. I'm not a subject, right? I'm a human being with a range of experiences. You know, the first question you should probably ask me is what my name is. Or right. if it's a party, who do I know at the party? Or are you friends with this person? You find common ground. And that's, to me, the first degree of relatability. If the first thing you see in a human being is not that relatability, but the difference, you know, that's that's where I think it's it becomes... Very frustrating. And certainly I think my that relatability, the idea of being relatable, it's gotten better in time, but certainly it's still not like, I still deal with that. I still, you know, deal with the things you care about, think about in your experiences yeah. don't resonate with the audience and the audience is not interested in, in trying. I love that. And to your point about asking this question, where, where are you from? When it comes to my kids, um, 
if somebody asks them, then the question itself takes on a completely different form, right? Yes. Yeah. Um, and that's the distinction that people should be able to understand and draw. Can I also just add, you know, context is, is so important too when, when we think about this because, you know, growing up in, in New York City, in Queens, New York, I was still constantly asked where I was from, but the difference was this is an immigrant city. So ah. even when I asked, you know, was asked, where are you from? I would ask white people where they're from and they would have answers. I'm Irish, I'm ah. German, or, you know, they'd, they'd give me fractions of things or they'd claim like, you know, I'm Irish, even if they hadn't been to Ireland ever and, you know, their family's four generations in. This is a city that very much holds to their ethnic identity, even if you're white. It's like a, it's a big thing. And so the where are you from question in this context, it felt different. As soon as uh -huh. I left that context, as soon as I left that kind of world where we're all from somewhere and no one claims complete ownership, that's when I had a sense of, okay, you're asking me where I'm from, but if I ask you, you're going to tell me a city in America, a town you grew up in, and that's not uh -huh. the question you asked me. Ah, you know what? I've done that a few times, even when I know what they're asking and I'm like, I'm from New York. But then they do a follow up question. Where is your accent from? Right, they are really yeah, persistent, yeah. right? Everyone In your case, they can't do that. <laughs> There's a certain like immediately I have to solve the case of what is this person. And it, yeah. it, it's, you know, it, it's absolutely frustrating. You know, again, I make exceptions like, you know, I used to get uh, haircuts in my parents' neighborhood and the all the um, you know barbers were from different parts of the former uh, Soviet Union. And a lot of them were Uzbeki. Mm -hmm. You know, one, when an immigrant asks you where you're from, I think that's valid. I think because there's, right. a, there's a different experience that comes with that huh. question. And secondly, you know, when those barbers were talking to me about Bollywood, normally when I see someone identify as white talking to me about Bollywood, I get upset. Like, I don't know anything about Bollywood. <laughs> but like the idea of, okay, you were part of the former Soviet Union. You didn't have access to Western film. You watched primarily Bollywood film because that was the big yeah. film industry available to you. That's a different context, which I understand. And I'm like, I will play this game with you because I find it fascinating. And your experience is so unique. And that to me is very different than, you know, I'm, you know, I'm in a party with other people with similar experiences and yet I get called out for being different because I exist as a brown person in this country. I recently found out that my accent is Pakistani accent, which I was like, oh, is there such a thing as Pakistani right. Indian accents? Have you ever heard of this? Like, it's so crazy. I was like, okay, I do speak colonizers language. Right. <laughs> right, I get right. that, right? But I don't think it's not our native language. So I don't think we have like one accent that represents 220 million people. I mean, right? that's part of being a minority too, because the nuance yeah. is lost, right? Because right. The, idea, the idea of an Indian accent means nothing. Are you talking <laughs> about like someone who was educated in Bombay boarding schools? Are you talking about somebody from the South with a oh different gosh. kind of yes. education? Are you talking about which generation are you talking about, you know, and how did they learn English? Did they learn English from, you know, the, the remnants of the, the British uh, Empire? Did they learn English 
for the purpose of getting a job in America. And so their lessons were different. Like the accents are not, uh, you know, singular things, you know, like there's, you know, it's like saying a British accent or an English accent, which I've said. In England, they are very aware of what your accent is. Are you posh? Are you somebody who's working class? Where in the country you're from? The idea of saying a British accent or an English accent in reality doesn't mean anything, especially in a society where accents are very heavily judged. So, yeah, you know, it's definitely the majority's view of the minority. It's not being able to see the nuance because all you see is the the bigger picture of this person is from another place and I hear a sound I'm not used to. Although I'll admit, I do confuse my V's and W's. So let's talk about the problem with Apu. My name is Hari Kondabolu. I've had a great career filled with laughter, critical acclaim. I should be completely happy, but there's still one man who haunts me, Apu Nahasapima Petalon. Please pay for your purchases and get out and come again. How many of you had to deal with being called a poo or that being referenced? The Simpsons, stereotypes, all races. The problem is we didn't have any other representation. Cabby, 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 deli, deli, deli. (laughs) (laughs) Doctor. You know that a white guy does the voice? Huh? A white guy doing an impression of a white guy making fun of my father. How do you feel about that? Oh, I'm making a movie about how much I dislike it. The character was finally removed in 2018, correct? I'm I'm not really sure if the character was removed or, or just hasn't been used in a long time and maybe brought back, but it certainly he hasn't been it, they've they've I think they've actively not used the character. Okay. So did this feel like an achievement of sorts, Hari, or do you think it was too long after the initial movement and therefore like maybe a bit less sincere? I mean, the funny thing is, is the achievement is the conversations that were productive that happened because of the film. Like Mm -hmm. what the Simpsons do or do not do is kind of irrelevant. If this was 1995, Mm -hmm. it's a very different conversation. But this many years later, it's more of a recounting and it's more of a sharing of a community experience. And it's a a discussion of of media and how media works more than it is a call to action. Like in the film, it's certainly framed in a more aggressive way. Like we have, can we get Hank to stop doing the voice? We have to find the the man who has the voice. What is the history? And part of that is like, you know, you, especially for a a documentary and cable television, you need something that's going to keep people's attention as opposed to simply talking about identity, which is what I actually Mm -hmm. wanted to do uh, before I realized I had to account for commercial breaks and keeping people tuned in. (laughs) So it's, it's, it's a different game at that point. But, you know, the film ultimately, like, to me, I don't don't really care what The Simpsons do. It's not, you know, the only thing that bothered me is when they'd, they had things on their show after which kind of, you know, insulted the point of view I shared. And they never, Mm. I I don't think the writers or producers really watched the documentary. I think they were just Mm. more, uh, I think they were fragile and they didn't like the idea of being questioned. (laughs) And I don't think they'd been questioned. And the thing I'm saying, honestly doesn't feel that shocking to anyone that's grown up with uh, an accent or who has parents who have accents Mm. that aren't Mm. the mainstream in this country. It's Mm. like, yeah, like people get prejudged. They get made fun of. They don't get seen as full people. This is not new. So it was shocking to see so many people be like, oh, people find this upsetting. I'm like, yeah, because we didn't have anything else. Like this is the if there were if there was 
I mean, it's a, it's paradoxical, right? If there was one, if there was hundreds of different portrayals of South Asians, and this was one of them, it wouldn't mm. matter so much. At the same time, if there were hundreds of portrayals of South Asians, this character wouldn't make sense to people. Because he right. would be too right. simple because you've seen a range of humanity. Like, this person's too simple. So that's the, the paradox in it. And my stereotypes are very, like, both dangerous and useless. It's that hmm. they, they will always, they have limited shelf lives. Because hmm. as people learn, they become dated and necessary and embarrassing. Because when you have more information, you can question it. So, you know, it, it, it was a critique of media. It was a critique of... Also, like a joke that's lasted too long. Um, right. <laughs> and it's not to say that I, I don't, you know, like that show hasn't had a major impact in my life. And it's not even to say that Apu isn't a funny character. He is a funny character. And they've, yeah. and, and they've written him as well as they could have since they introduced him. And they built more interesting plots for him. And that's great. But at the same time, at the end of the day, you know, that voice is what's carrying it and that's what has carried it for a long time. And that's been something that, you know, has made life harder for, I think, a lot of people who have accents. How are you viewed as a serious uh, person? How are you viewed as yeah. someone with valid opinions when your accent makes people take you less seriously? Absolutely. Accent is one stereotype that can cause real harm. Yeah. And People don't understand that. Other people have been passed on for jobs. There have been real repercussions, which, of course, white folks don't understand. It's an experience minorities deal with, which is trying to find ways to uh, blend in so you have opportunity. Mm. It, you know, to some people, it becomes a survival mechanism and you get Absolutely. so used to like, I'll do what it takes and you can call me whatever name you want to call me and you can say whatever you want as long as I can do what I need to do for my, my career, my livelihood. And for some, it's like swallowing pride, right? It's like, mm, I'm going to mm. deal with this because I have bigger issues to deal with. But like, it's part of the conversation I think every minority group has, which is how do we, you know, not lose opportunities as the result of being who we are, which is an incredibly unfair situation to be in. I mean... Accent is part of your identity, right? This is how I see myself. This is my accent. And to do away with it because people are not comfortable makes me so uncomfortable, right? Right. And it deletes history, right? It, it, it's the colonizer's accent. It's the it's you speaking the colonizer's language. That in itself, do you know why that accent is there? Because it wasn't our language. It exactly. was a language forced on... <laughs> a broad range of South Asians, and it's a language that has become the dominant language for all sorts of reasons globally. So, it, you know, to ignore that is to ignore everything that comes with it. And the fact that it is so pervasive is evidence of imperialism. Yes. <laughs> and colonialism, that's how it spread. So what was it like collaborating with all these other actors and activists of color like Carl Penn and Whoopi Goldberg? Were there any um, behind the scenes things going on that isn't obvious to the viewer's eye when you were creating this documentary? You know, not, I mean, other than people being thankful that I was making it, you know, that's one thing I've noticed, too. Like, that's how I know that many people who hate the film haven't actually seen it. Because whenever they say things like he's the only one that feels this way or, 
I'm the one who gets all the death threats. Not to say I wish death threats on anybody, but it's like, you know, there was a lot of other people that were in the film that you like and that you know who felt the same way. And if you had seen it, you probably at some point would have to think, oh, this is a lot of people. I think there was, you know, for the most part, a degree of thank you for doing this, whether it's because mm. it's a South Asian actor who's like, I'm just so sick of reading these parts and I want the culture of, of media to change. Or if it's somebody who grew up hearing it and is like, you know, my identity was shaped by this sense that, you know, I was embarrassed by who I was or my family and my culture. And that certainly you know has an impact. You know, I think there was a sense of I'm glad you're doing this. Um, but mm. other than that, like, you know, I think what you see is is, is pretty honest, right? Like it's yeah. it's yeah. people yeah. who are honestly annoyed by this character and <laughs> yes. felt impacted, which I realize seems silly. You know, I think a lot of people have have said everybody gets bullied as kids get over it. And I'm like, first of all, that doesn't say I still don't think bullying is good, first of all. And secondly, racialized bullying, I think, is a it's different, very different thing. Yes. It's a very different Absolutely. thing. Because you Absolutely. can't grow out of uh you know you can't grow out of what what you fundamentally are you can't it's hard you can't really learn from that and and also like it doesn't end after you grow up that's the other thing i, I think people see bullying as well it ends in high school you know the bullying lasts forever especially when you're part yeah. of immigrant communities absolutely absolutely hurry this season we are focusing on representation in media what are some of the policy educational and even social choices you think need to happen to make representation more authentic i mean honestly this is this is really a question about capitalism more than anything else and i think it's mm-hmm. because this is this is a film industry and television industry they're industries and to mm-hmm. them, if if it wasn't, if we weren't in the moment we were as a society, they would not care as much, yeah. you know? Like, this is the result of the world changing. It, it's kind of, you know, sometimes it's a chicken or egg. Did the world change because media changed and people were influenced by new things? Or were they influenced by these new things so media changed? You know, they feed off each other. So I think, you know, you, that means you have to tackle it two ways. One is that, if there are programs or films or people who are doing work that you find incredible, the energy you spent on criticizing artists, focus it on supporting the people you want to see. Because that right. actually has more impact. The ability to actually like push forward art that you want to see means there'll be more of it. And and, and that it's that's it's true. successful. And I think that's that's crucial. Um also there was a time when, you know, we would complain about portrayals in the mainstream media and people would say things, well, then make your own thing, which is like, I'm not a TV studio. I can't make <laughs> a show. I don't have a network. But exactly. those times have, have changed dramatically in that, you know what, uh-huh. if you are an artist, it's easier to have access to the equipment, the editing. People yep. are recording things yeah. on their phones and in, in HD. Like you actually have the ability to make something that is viewed and the thing with that is, you know, Hollywood is not that creative. And if they <laughs> see something someone made that is successful, they want in on it because there's money yeah. attached to it. Whether that's yeah. Issa Rae, you know, and her awkward black girl becoming insecure, you know, Broad City was initially like a short uh, online thing. And I believe Comedy Central, you know, things change slow, but you you see they see that this is op- this is an opportunity 
to mm. make money, we have to invest in that. Plus, you know, there's so many in the old days of three or four networks, you're trying to get the biggest audience you can. And the biggest audience yeah. means mainstream white America. Now mm. you have broadcast, you have cable networks, you have a million streamers, you have all these yeah, apps. Like the goal now is to get an audience. And you know what? If That's a different bar because now you're thinking about how do I draw like-minded people to see this? And to do that, mm. a diversity of programs ends up being really important. And so mm. I think it, keep creating, keep supporting people that you think are making work, that is changing how the industry works as well as how people are represented and, and, and make more art. You know, just keep writing. Mm. I feel that to me is the solution. And I never would have said that a decade ago because a decade ago, it's such a different situation. To right. say something like that is insulting. It's to say, you have power, why are you whining? Mm. The context mm. now is different. I'm not saying, we're, you know, you have the power, why aren't you whining? What I'm saying is the, the market has changed. The ways of thinking have changed. Not necessarily in terms of solely people's ethics have changed. That's part of it. But also people know, like, where the money is now. And so it's our mm. responsibility to push our stories forward and, and, and go from there. Hmm. And one day, Emmys won't be as white, hopefully. So talking about content creation, Hari, do you have any upcoming publications or projects that our listeners should keep an eye out for? You know, I'm working on a few things that are in the development phase. So when, when, hmm. so it's not at a place to like, oh, this thing is coming out. Um, okay. But I will say, you know, if you haven't listened to the podcast I have with W. Kamau Bell, Politically Reactive, I would because I still think it's a great podcast and <laughs> we're on a hiatus right now. But three seasons of it are, are available. Uh, I have The Problem with Apu available on HBO Max, which was yeah. huge because people who hate the film can now see it and, and actually know if they really hate it. <laughs> and people who've heard of the film can actually see it now because it's available on HBO Max. And my Netflix special, uh, Warn Your Relatives... Um, it's still there. And I, you know, I, I, you know, it was made before the Biden uh, Harris election. But I do ah. think that sadly, a lot of the content is relevant because injustice and oppression don't just go right. away in a span of three or four years. And I think absolutely there's there's some universal ideas in it that I, I think still last the test of time. So I hope people see that special warn your relatives. That sounds great. So in the end, if you were to describe America in a word or a sentence, how would you do that? America is a complicated, inconsistent <laughs> colonial experiment. It's not, it I is like something that. that was created by outsiders, changed what was actually here through force, through violence. People were forced here either through slavery or other forms of forced migration. And they're all trying to make it work while under the umbrella of white supremacy, which makes things much harder to, you know, get, you know, white supremacy, I don't think is in the best interests of, of building a nation. You know, uh, it, you, uh. it, it almost feels like, are your loyalties to humanity or your loyalties to country or are your loyalties to whiteness? And, and that is really the question. And if we actually believe in this idea of, of country, then your loyalty can't be to whiteness. It has to be to what's best for the nation. And secondly, you know, and more actually not secondly, more importantly, as a human being, what's good for humanity, which I think mm. trumps what's good for country. So I think, you know, 
race and racism um, has done us a great injustice in that it's taken away from what could be a better experience for a lot of us in this country. You know, again, a colonial experiment, but, you know, this is the reality we're living in right now. What an incredibly honest and vulnerable conversation. It's so important to share your story as part of normalization. It shouldn't be seen as a political statement. It is your lived experience. There is so much that Hari and I talked about, and I really, really, really hope that you enjoyed our conversation surrounding representation, capitalism, even British colonialism. If you liked our show today, give us feedback. Write us a good review. It makes a huge difference. Don't forget to subscribe to our Patreon. If you believe in supporting indie podcasters, go support our Patreon. You can follow us on Instagram at ImmigrantlyPod and Twitter at Immigrantly underscore pod. Until next time, when we have another amazing guest. Take care.